Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, for episode 159 with Phil Bonello, we're speaking about the Sovereign Individual, which is a very well-known book in Bitcoin circles. It's very prescient. And so we speak about some of these ideas and also the related ideas around the investment thesis and investment case around Bitcoin. If you're looking for a place to buy, sell, trade Bitcoin, you can't go past Kraken, one of the world's leading Bitcoin exchanges. They're consistently rated the best from a security standpoint. They offer high trading volume, they're very liquid, and they've got low fees. They offer 24-7 support. It's easy to sign up and get support if you need it. Also, it's now even easier for active traders and institutions to avoid friction when you're executing orders because they've just launched nine new foreign currency pairs, allowing you to be more agile and sophisticated. There's Kraken Pro mobile app delivering all the security and features you love about the Kraken Exchange in a beautiful mobile-first design for advanced Bitcoin trading. Go and check out kraken.com or find Kraken Pro in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Next up is Unchained Capital, a Bitcoin financial services company respecting the Not Your Keys ethos around Bitcoin and using Multiseek to provide customers with better products and services. If you're bullish on Bitcoin and you're thinking about what's happening with the next 10x or more in price, well, you, you've got to think about multi-signature. Unchained Capital make it easy for you to do a two of three vault and this is a great option to secure your Bitcoin for the long term. It's easier to set it up online. You can use Trezor and Ledger. Cold card is coming soon. They've also got collateralized loans, so you can get USD without selling your Bitcoin. Go and check out Unchained Capital. They're offering excellent services, valuable content, open source tools. Find out more at unchained-capital.com. Next, Swan Bitcoin. Bitcoin is better money, and you want to stack it regularly without manual processing, right? If you're in the US, look up swanbitcoin.com. You can link any major US bank account via ACH and auto buy weekly or monthly. The Bitcoin is delivered to your wallet or stored with a licensed and regulated custodian. Swan Bitcoin's focus is on education and Bitcoin advocacy. Jan Pritzker, author of Inventing Bitcoin, is their CTO, and Brady from Citizen Bitcoin is head of education. I'm involved as an advisor with a small equity stake also. So there's givebitcoin.io for your Bitcoin gifting and go to swanbitcoin.com for your automated Bitcoin stacking. One quick note before the interview. Unfortunately, I had that problem. I made a mistake with the configuration and was accidentally recording out of my webcam microphone and not my podcast microphone. So you'll notice that on my side of the audio for this interview. However, I have listened through it. I think it's fine. I think you will still enjoy the interview. So here it is. Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me. So, Phil, I, I know you wrote about the Bitcoin sovereign individual investment thesis on your uh, Substack recently. So I thought it'd be great to chat with you and also talk a bit about the book, The Sovereign Individual, because I think it, there's a lot of relevance right now, especially. So uh, can you just start with telling us a little bit about yourself, how you got into Bitcoin and what's your involvement in all this world? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I originally got involved in the space, uh, actually kind of interestingly through, I was interested uh, in machine-to-machine communication and uh, kind of the whole IoT space. And I actually happened upon Ethereum and I thought it was it was amazing. Uh, and that kind of, that launched me into the whole space. My thoughts have changed significantly since then. Uh, and I'm much more on the monetary side than the technology side, but I, you know, I still think there is some uh, there's there's some use on the technology side of things. But so kind of in 2016, 2017, I really started to get interested in everything. And I uh, decided to kind of leave my full-time job completely and do research full-time. Uh, that actually led me down to uh, Los Angeles to join 
Ikigai Asset Management, which is a multi-strategy hedge fund. Uh, so I uh, led research at Ikigai, uh, you know, going through all the different altcoins as well as Bitcoin, looking at on-chain metrics, market analysis, looking at our venture investments, really just uh, doing research across the board. Uh, and then I left Ikigai in the fall and I've just been an independent analyst for the last uh, few months. And one of the things that I wrote, like you, like we're talking about today, is the sovereign individual uh, investment thesis. Uh, you know, I, I read The Sovereign Individual. I almost, I, I feel ashamed almost that it took me so long to uh, to read the book. But when I read it, I was just like, this makes so much sense. It's so applicable to today. And it, it's one of those books where you, you read a page and you're like, was that written last week? But really it was, it was you know, it was written 20 years ago. And it's, it's, it's incredible in that way. And so I decided to try to make... Uh, uh, my reading of the sovereign individual as applicable as possible by putting together this investment thesis, uh, looking through different pillars of the sovereign individual. That's awesome. And so for listeners who have not read the sovereign individual, can you just give them a background? When was this book written and what's it mostly about? Yeah, so the book was written in 1997. And I would say the primary thing that sovereign individual talks about is the leverage of violence and uh, the power shifts throughout uh, different periods of history. So uh, st starting in the hunter-gathering hunter uh, phase uh, to agricultural societies, to industrial society, and now to the information age. And the reason that's relevant is because in um, hunter-gatherer societies, there wasn't a need to uh, kind of hoard goods. There wasn't this idea of personal property. Actually, it was, uh, inefficient to uh, hoard anything because there were no preservation techniques. So if, if you were to kill something, then it's probably going to rot and you're actually just decreasing the available amount of food that you can then go out and hunt for later on, right? Uh, so the, there wasn't this idea of personal property. And then uh, in agricultural societies, that's when the idea of personal property really came to be, right? And And so with personal property, there was also uh, increased uh, leverage to violence, right? So now everybody has goods that they're saving. And that also means that they need to protect those goods. And so now the biggest guy in town can get a bunch of his buddies and just say, okay, either we're going to use this violence to just go take stuff from people, or maybe we can provide a service to all the people in town and help them protect the goods that they have. So you can kind of see this power structure, uh, form around violence and, and, and the power of violence. Uh, and then in the industrial age, that, that leverage of violence actually just becomes exponentially increased, right? Because now these nation states have the ability to build really, really destructive weapons. And the people that use those weapons to the best of their ability have the most power in the world. Uh, and now in the information age, a lot of the physical violence, uh, that leverage starts to decrease because more and more of our wealth and power is, li uh, is living in the digital world opposed to the physical world. And governments and uh, violence has less leverage in that, or in that digital world, right? Uh, so it it's just this kind of this shift in power structures, and especially as we kind of transform into the information age, there's this decreased leverage to, to violence. And uh, basically, the book goes into detail about how they predict 
the information age will change those kind of power structures. Yeah, it's really relevant for us today as well. Everyone's going through this coronavirus thing and we're seeing crazy movement in the financial markets. And I think people are now starting to question a little bit more what those preconceived assumptions were about, oh, the government will protect me. Now it's not so clear, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the most uh, interesting things and one of the things that I... uh, didn't didn't really expect when I when I wrote that thesis is that we're seeing this shift happen very very quickly right now, right? The book talks a lot about uh, uh, protection and this idea of protection, and in in the in the thesis, I also talk about uh, the motivations for why people would adopt some of these different um, uh, investments, right? Like I think right now we're in a very consumer mindset, kind of this idea of acquire things. And we don't have much of a defensive mindset, people generally, right? We kind of outsource our, our protection. Uh, I think we can, we can look at just, you know, a very simple cases. Most people use the password one, two, three, four, five, six. Like that's the most commonly used password in the world, right? It, and that's not much of a password. Uh, then we see a lot of things like these, uh, some of these hacks that are going on in, in, uh, centralized institutions. We're leaving all of our data to, you know, Google, Facebook, what have you, and we just really don't care about privacy protection, any of these things, because things have been going really well, right? But I, I think this this virus could be a kind of a tipping point in some ways. Uh, number one, because we're we're all forced to live in the digital world if we're all going to be locked in our apartments or our, our homes. But also, and I've seen this pop up in the last uh, week, a lot, there are a lot of government initiatives uh, that are getting pushed through uh, to surveil populations with the idea that, okay, this will help us uh, kind of stamp out coronavirus. And, and, and that's pretty scary, scary to me. But I also think that things kind of have to get worse in, in that direction. And there has to be more surveillance for people to realize the value of privacy and the value of their digital freedom. So really crazy to see what's happened over the last you know few months uh, on so many different levels. <laughs> but yeah, that's right. And as uh, a famous saying, for all my disagreements with uh, Milton Friedman, he had a very famous quote, which is, there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. And that's what we've seen with, you know, even if you look back to 9-11 and the Patriot Act and all the impacts of the TSA and all the security theater that we see around the world, we're going to see another round of that with Corona as well. We're going to see all sorts of power grabs and people will then stop and think, well, hang on, how much power does the government have? How exactly how much insight or surveillance into my life does the government have now with all these new powers that are inevitably going to come down the line? Uh, So, this change in power dynamics, and I think a really interesting point from the sovereign individual, maybe you could touch on this as well, is they mention the end of nations. And maybe it's not like the end of all nations, but they at least they become a lot smaller. And an interesting point as well was this idea of certain currently existing powers didn't realize that their power was fading, like the Roman Empire didn't recognize that their power was fading. Do you see a similar dynamic today? Yes. And so I think the the juxtaposition is kind of governments based on voice versus gov- governments based on exit, 
and exit cost has never been uh, cheaper. You know, like it's really easy to go anywhere in the world specifically because you can still communicate with anybody in the world. You can still do most jobs from anywhere in the world. And again, back to the virus, you know, this is being becoming more and more clear. We can, uh, we can work remotely and uh, everybody, I, I, I really think that working remotely is going to be more of a necessity than a luxury and working physically like in a city or something is going to be more viewed as a luxury uh, than a necessity. Yeah. So, so basically I just, I, I think that exit costs are going to continue to decrease for governments and we're going to continue to see these uh, big bureaucratic weights uh, drag down uh, general populations and there's, there's going to be a, a, a real need to exit, right? Like I think Singapore is such a great model and it's, it's, yeah, I, I think that a lot of people are just going to realize that there's, there's no reason to pay exorbitant taxes uh, to also let their money be uh, devalued relative to uh, the supply. I mean, again, look at what's happening, looking at what's happening in the last couple of days with stimulus packages. Yeah, that's right. And so I, with places like Singapore or Hong Kong, well, before some of the recent more Chinese government uh, interventions into Hong Kong, those were probably better examples, although obviously nothing's perfect, but they were probably better examples of city-state kind of idea, smaller government, not necessarily zero. Although one thing, though, it is it is going to take some time, though, right? So because right now, and let's, let's be cognizant as well, right? People like yourself or me or probably many of my listeners as well might be in a position where we can work remotely but there would be there are still a fair few jobs that can't be done remotely right whether that's you know you're a delivery driver or you're a chef or you're you know you're you're in some sort of service role that can't be done remotely but i wonder what's your view on even that small percentage or let's say growing small but growing percentage of people who can work fully remotely will the changes they do with their own life still impact everyone else anyway that such such that it brings a benefit anyway so i'm not sure i i'm not sure i answered i i understand the question fully yeah so i'm just saying for example it might be that only 20 or 30 percent of society can work remotely yeah but could it be that even if only 20 or 30 percent of people work remotely that's enough to still drive a change in the overall society such that you know we can all get a benefit even if you don't even if you can't work remotely would you still benefit from the fact that there are people who can yeah, so I I think there's going to be a and and this has been playing out over the last few years as well. Everybody can be educated uh, because information is so readily available, right? And when everybody can be educated uh, with the same information, uh, then everybody can pursue the same type of jobs. You know, you know, again, physical location is is still a barrier, but the trend is towards digital, right? And and more and more people can do jobs digitally. So even 20, 30%, uh, whatever the number may be, and that will have a very interesting impact for society. So for developed countries, I think it probably is going to be a big wake-up call, a shock, a deflationary shock, right? Where a lot of people have gone to uh, university, have paid $200,000 for education. And now someone who, you know, maybe is in rural India, uh, has done some online coding courses and can now do a similar job as someone who's living in San Francisco. And, you know, that that's probably going to be really tough for the person who's in San Francisco uh, trying to pay $3,000 a month for um, a studio apartment, right? Um, 
However, that's great for the person in rural India. Now they can satisfy jobs that are, you know, maybe five times what they would make before. And that's a really interesting dynamic. So I, I think I think we're going to see wages continue to trend up in kind of developing countries and probably trend down a bit in uh, developed countries. Yeah. And it may also have the impact of varying the government expenditure or minimizing government expenditure, even in the big government countries, because people have the the alternative of going elsewhere. So currently, you know, as you were saying, part of the calculus was the logic behind violence, right? And how much can you protect yourself and versus how much is your protection being outsourced to the government? But then the, the other question that you could raise is, how much of the government's expenditure is legitimately that defense versus how much of that is random offensive wars around the world or how much of that is like welfare state or random bureaucracy? Do you believe there's a case there that governments become more lean? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I definitely don't think like we don't see any kind of government. I, I just think the trend is, like you said, a more lean system, maybe more localized governments. Yeah, because like you said, uh, when you really do a cost benefit analysis, it's like, well, what is what is this uh, government actually providing me? Oh, I think they're providing me protection. Okay, but what is that as an overall percentage of of the cost, right? Uh, and yeah, yeah. It's funny. Um, I saw as well some recent news. I can't remember exactly which state. I think it was Philadelphia. Oh no, I can't remember. But there was a specific. There was like some announcement that saying that they weren't going to police certain types of uh, crimes anymore <laughs> because of coronavirus. And it's like, hang on. Okay, fine. Well, if they're shutting down, does that mean you don't have to pay the taxes for that? Yeah. Also, also very, <laughs> also very strange that they would even announce that, right? Why, why would you, why would you announce that? Why would you just stop? Poli- you know, I, I'm not sure what the rationale was behind that, but pretty strange. Yeah. So that's a really funny thing there as well. And I, yeah, I mean, it is going to, going to drive this change. Now, uh, one really interesting topic from the book that might be good to talk about as well is the black magic of compound interest. And so it's just a section where they're talking about here, basically they're saying, look, every, so here, just quoting a section, it says, remember each $5,000 of annual tax payments paid over 40 years slashes your net worth by 2.2 million, assuming you could realize just a 10% return on your capital. At a 20% return, that balloons to 44 million. And so basically it just, uh, the, so another section there saying compared to the Swiss alternative, the lifetime losses from paying federal income tax at US rates would be $705 million for an investor who could average a 20% rate of return. So I guess the question for you, Phil, is what does it look like when people start jurisdiction shopping uh, because of this massive uh, incentive they have? Yeah, well, I mean, we aren't very good at uh, projecting nonlinear growth, you know, so uh, like a 20% tax versus 30% tax, you know, it doesn't seem to make all that much of a difference on, a, on an annual basis. But then when you start to really do some of that compounding, it's uh, it's pretty shocking. But but I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I, again, I look at Singapore and I, I've been meaning to really dig more into uh, the founding of Singapore and uh, kind of the, the thought process behind some of their their tax structuring. Yeah, you know, it's going to be interesting. Like I, one comment that I will make, though, is in the book, I think they tend to be pretty absolute about 
like this digital world and exit costs, but you know, we still are living in the physical world, right? We still have to um, eat, sleep. Um, we have to have a roof over our heads, uh, have to protect ourselves against, you know, a virus essentially. And uh, there are nicer places to live than others. Right. So, you know, like I, currently I'm, I'm in Los Angeles. It's, it's 70 degrees outside. I moved from Chicago where it's, terrible in the winter is disgusting right and and so those type of things still play in right but yeah certain certainly you know topography climate uh, those are those are huge deals and uh, technology is just one factor in, in, in that uh, and I still think there will be taxes you know probably maybe five ten percent that seems a little bit more reasonable right yeah and, and I think we will see more and more people try to especially at the higher echelons of income, We'll see those people try to get a tax deal with a certain country, right? They may go to whatever, the Switzerland or the wherever of the world and try and negotiate a better tax deal, which makes sense from the perspective of those other countries as well. If they can get a high earning person or a person who's producing a lot, then it's, it's worth their while to do that. Yeah, I, so, I think it probably starts with the wealthy, with like the ultra wealthy, um, where there are either attempts to seize some of their wealth through taxation uh, you know, we had, we had the had the wealth tax proposal on the board. It's like, okay, I I have ten billion dollars, and the government's saying that they want to take fifty percent of it. No, I, I don't think so. And then you know, oh, you're going to jail me. Okay, well, I'm going to go look for another place to live, right? So I th- I think that'll probably start with the wealthy. Yeah, and so also even for those people who are still living you know, in in the country they're normally in and they haven't left yet or or yet, let's say. Um, there is still this funny dynamic of old laws versus new technology. So in the book as well, they make an example where fax machine laws in the 80s still outlawed like use of fax machines uh, because they were uh, under the, the, these ancient laws, they were considering it like a first-class mail, which the U.S. post office has the legal monopoly and whatever, <laughs> but and yet people are still using fax machines, right? Yeah. And so it's a similar kind of thing where maybe we see more and more people who have the option to set up their own BTC pay server and be a sovereign individual and receive Bitcoins for their services. And who's going to stop that? And who's going to know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think regulation is always lagging technological progress. Uh, and, and there's there's no hope for it uh, to kind of get, get ahead. And, and yeah, as more people are using Bitcoin, hopefully, uh, there will be less ability for these governments to tax and less, less ability for them to create revenue through uh, money printing. Yeah. Now, one topic that I think is also important to raise is to understand sometimes we might be right directionally about the way things are going, but we might be calling it early. And in the like, as listeners have probably seen the big short, right? Like those guys who had to hold that position for a long time. And there were times where they were, they looked like they were wrong, but it's just they were early. And there were many who tried that trade and failed because they weren't able to hold it all the way through. So it's in the same way. Do you think any of these ideas, they're right, but they're just early? Yeah. And, and to be honest, I thought that uh, probably five months ago, I thought that we were way earlier than today. You know, today, I, I think that maybe that 10 year timeline is maybe more like five years. And I but I think uh, digital money is pretty much ready for the world and the world is ready for it. So I kind of see that as the first domino. And then I also think like dissident technology, this anti-fragile technology, distributed technology, generally like mesh computing, things like that. I think 
I think that's probably maybe a little further out, but but not not too far out, right? Like, especially again, coming back to the present day, what's going on with the virus, what's going on with kind of nationalization. And I, I really think that we could see a, an uptick in demand for some of these services, but still probably five, five years until they're really in demand. Yeah. And I think something for me, even uh, I was noticing People on Twitter were much ahead, much further ahead of my friends on Facebook, for example. And I think it's a similar dynamic that we'll see in terms of people who are into Bitcoin right now. They're still they're still very early compared to the masses. And so it takes time for that message to percolate out to everyone. In terms of the Sovereign Individual book, are there any things you think the book got wrong? So I, I mentioned this a little bit. They tend to be a little absolute. Don't take into account the actual physical benefits of, of being in certain locations uh, where, where I think there still are a lot of, a lot of benefits to being in, in one place versus another. Uh, and then I would say they don't talk, touch a whole lot on uh, the ability for phys- physical coercion to still exist. Right. So even if I have all my money in Bitcoin and I have, you know, three or five multi-sig and whatever it may be, still there are ways for people in the physical world to coerce me to give up that information, give up those private keys, and then they can still take take control of my Bitcoin or whatever digital goods it may be. The other thing is, I, I don't think they really touch on tech conglomerates like Google, Facebook. Uh, like, how do we deal with those? And uh, they didn't predict kind of the uprising of these of these big powerhouses, right? That, and I think that's largely due to the client server relationship. And hopefully, we have new services in the coming years that kind of change that relationship, but. But still, those are those are some of the biggest powerhouses in the world today, uh, maybe more powerful than a lot of governments. And they don't really touch on that too much. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that those are things that would have been difficult to predict from, you know, in the late 90s to understand how things could have played out that way that now we have big companies like Apple and Facebook and Google and Amazon who in some ways have powers similar to a nation state. They're not quite the same, but they, they can have a lot of influence. Let's bring it now to the sovereign individual investment thesis, right? So what are some of the ways, let's say we've accepted the thesis, the underlying thesis of the sovereign individual as a book, and we are, you know, we're committed to that idea. We think that's, 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 that's correct and it's going to play out that way. How do we then act as investors? And you start off with this Jeff Bezos quote. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I, I start off with the Jeff Bezos quote um, specifically because I, I think we, we try to focus a lot on how things are going to change, and and Bezos has this great quote, which is I'm more interested in. I'm going to paraphrase this here, but I'm more interested in what's not going to change over the next ten years than what is actually going to change. And he, he actually starts to talk about like consumers are never going to say that they want slower delivery times. They're never going to say that that they want higher prices for you know basic goods. And so I think that's really interesting. And I, I use that kind of as the beginning way to think about different angles of demand for all of these different and, and for how these shifts are actually going to take place. Yeah. And so then we get into some of these theories of change. And as, as you spell out, you have a few different ones. One of them is globalization as an equalizing force. This idea of having low cost jurisdictions, remote work, online education. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, so I touched on it a little bit. I think education is such a massive part of this. Churches really controlled uh, information for a long time, and then printing press came along, and people were able to print books really efficiently, and that changed the way that education could be, information could be disseminated, and education as a result of that, right? 
And, and right now we see really, really expensive education, huge student debt, and it's just completely unsustainable. I think some of the really interesting things are like so, something like Lambda School, uh, Code Academy, Udemy. Those are really interesting products and uh, they allow people to really learn probably just as well, if not better than traditional education institutions. Like I, I love going on Code Academy and just messing around a little bit and trying to learn some Python or uh, C++ or, or what have you, you know, and it, it's, it's almost agreed upon, at least in, in my circles, that you go to high, get higher education, mostly for, for the credentials, for the network that you create and for those, you know, two, three letters, right? And so I, I think education is a really important part. And I think we're going to see a huge uptake in online education. And then the follow on to that is credentialing. Right. So if, if people are still going to traditional institutions, mostly because of uh, the credentials that it gives them, how do we how do we replace that? Right. There there is they are useful. Credentials are useful. Um, but is, is a social graph of some sort maybe more useful? Like Eric Tornberg has been working on something called Cosine, which kind of creates this uh, this social graph where you can endorse uh, someone that you've worked with. Or someone that has inspired you, and uh, you only there's a scarce scarce amount of endorsements that you can make uh, every month, and that's really interesting. And I, I'm not sure if that'll work or if something else will work, but those kind of experiments I, I see uh, having a big impact in the coming years. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of like LinkedIn recommendations and whatever. Now that became a bit of a farce, right? Because it was just like whatever. But uh, yeah, maybe it could be done better. Uh, but we'll see some of these ideas of quote-unquote, unbundling of the credential from the university experience and unbundling the educational content from the university experience and putting it into the Coursera, Udemy, Code Academies of the world and Lambda schools of the world. Yep. Um, and so when it comes to things like media, do you see changes there as a result of this sovereign individual investment thesis? Yeah, I do. And I think, again, you know, with the with the virus, it, it's been incredibly uh, eye opening from probably late December uh, until now. I've been following on Twitter what's been going on, uh, mostly because we have this distributed media coming at us. Right. We follow all these people that we we might respect and uh, we see some of like someone's retweeting a really good piece of information that may or may not be true. And then someone's call, calling out certain pieces of that. and. Um, you know, what is what is true, what's false. And Balaji, uh, you know, he's been kind of this hero of the coronavirus kind of uptake, right? Nobody was talking about this. Uh, mainstream media was actually making fun of Silicon Valley for uh, being worried about the coronavirus. And even when I when I was talking with friends and family, and I would text, I would text someone about coronavirus, I, I'd be made fun of, right? Like for weeks, and it probably until last week, and that was the only reason I had any kind of education on, on uh, that was non-traditional was because of Twitter. I was receiving such great content from so many people that I that I respected and that I that I knew, and they're they're consistently being fact-checked, right? On Twitter, someone posts something, and everybody else can say, "No, this is false. This is true." And I, I think that's really interesting. And it's the same. It, it goes along the same lines as like the social credentials, right? Uh, yeah, because you've got that sort of social graph of who follows who and companies like uh, like that website, Hive.one. So I often recommend that for newbies as well to go and find, okay, here are some good people in the Bitcoin world. It's not perfect, but it's at least a good indicator of who follows who. That's kind of a social graph in that way. And so that's an interesting thing as well, like yeah. rep 
new versions of reputation systems, if you will. Yeah. One question I guess that comes up there is, does that only work for people who are really, really well known? What if you're not in the top 200 or whatever of a certain field? How are you meant to get known and how are you meant to get employed that way? Yeah, I, I think it allows the it allows the cream to rise to the top, and it, it it doesn't always happen immediately, right? But you you see sometimes someone just has a thread on Twitter that goes viral, and you know hundreds of thousands of people like it or retweet it or or whatever it may be, and you 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 compare that to going to four years of of university, and then maybe going into a job, and then you you work at that job for ten years. And then you maybe get title of vice president and then someone starts to listen to you, right? Well, you don't even have to go to college. You don't have to go to high school. You can just start writing uh, online and sharing that on Twitter. And that's a great way to uh, gain, gain credibility. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and so we're moving into this more digital world and we need ways to protect our money, uh, for, be- for want of a better word. So what are some of the companies and some of the products that we will need to do that one of the most interesting things that i've been thinking about recently is the idea of digital insurance and uh essentially if more value is now living in the digital world and and i mean digital world uh as naturally digital not not just a copy of the physical world right so something like bitcoin and some something like non-fungible tokens uh, or these things that are actually they're they're digital goods they're not they're not available in the physical world in any um, sort of way and they're and they're immutable so if you lose them that that's it right and i think that uh these key management systems like something like casa is really really interesting because that essentially serves as a type of insurance against you losing uh your private keys and i think there could be multiple multiple tiers of uh key management systems uh and we see this starting to you know come up today like for your for your really if you have you know millions of dollars of bitcoin then you're probably going to want to use the top tier of casa right and then if you uh, just have something that you want to use on a day-to-day basis. You're just going to keep it in your hot wallet on your iPhone. Um, and so we'll have different different kind of tiers. And uh, key management systems seems like this killer use case where it's going to mirror the insurance, kind of the insurance business in the physical world. Yeah. And in terms of Bitcoin investment, we have to think about uh, the split between businesses that work for speculation now and defense later. So I think you, you spelled out a little bit of that, for example, with companies like, say, Casa and Unchained, who are there to offer like multi-sig as your defense for the future. But uh, what about some other Bitcoin businesses that might be warrant, that warrant consideration? Yeah. And uh, so I, I think in, in, in the post that I wrote, I, I probably called out, you know, Bit, BitMEX and Binance because they've, they've essentially been able to kind of skirt regulation, but also offer like this gate, this great gambling product, right? So they're able to, uh, at the same time, satisfy uh, this speculation need, but also uh, satisfy the defensive need in being able to kind of skirt uh, government regulation. Uh, but also companies like, you know, Grayscale or lending businesses like Genesis or BlockFi, you know, those are those are satisfying demand right now. Uh, I think that some of the stuff that's going on with Lightning is really interesting and uh, like something like Strike, OpenNode, I mean, those are those are really important. Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm really curious to see what other types of businesses are built around Bitcoin because yeah, it, it's kind of hard to imagine what a free you know a free money can do. 
Uh, we're, we're bounded a little bit by scalability issues right now, but Lightning may open that up a lot. And, and so I think one of the questions that I, that I frequently ask myself is, uh, will Lightning become a killer, killer use case because of censorship resistance? Or will it become a killer use case because of usability, right? Like, will Lightning applications or a Lightning wallet be able to be integrated with a game, right? And now you can monetize all sort of gameplay. So will it be on the usability side or will it be just the censorship resistant aspect of, of money and trying to use Lightning in that way? Yeah, there's a lot in, in that. So there's a lot of examples I can think of already. Like, so things like Light Knight, for example, the attempt to make a kind of Fortnite style game, but with Lightning uh, payment. Uh, that's just one example. And it's early days still. There's a lot of development still to make the Lightning Network more private. And that, that will come hopefully over time. Uh, I'm, I'm optimistic on it. Um, but uh, even even just Bitcoin without Lightning, right? Like if you're just using, say, CoinJoin and, uh, you know, Samurai Wallet or Join Market, there's um, potential there as well for people to use these kinds of, uh, as you say, dissident technologies yep. to give themselves an edge or to give themselves some protection. Uh, so do you have any thoughts around uh, that pathway as well of people using uh, privacy techniques and privacy tools? You know, I, I think it's, again, one of these things where it's not in, in demand right now because of this whole, uh, this whole idea of defense versus acquire, this defense versus speculation. Uh, and most people don't have a defensive mindset. You know, you frequently hear like, what do you have to hide? You know, <laughs> privacy, why does it matter? I think that's pretty absurd, but I don't think we're going to see a huge uptick until things get worse, right? Like things are going to have to get, get worse before people actually realize why privacy is so important or why protection is so important, like personal protection and bring it into your own hands. And yeah, it, it's, it's unfortunate that things have to get worse before uh, people realize that, but it's kind of analogous to people buying a ton of insurance after uh, like an earthquake, right? Like that, that's, a, that's a common thing that happens, but obviously uh, not very intuitive. Right, yeah, it's, a, it's like an availability heuristic. Sometimes we only think of things once they've been on the media and now you think, oh, okay, yeah, I need to go and get this thing, right? And so it's the same thing. I, I agree with you that, um, and the same thing with inflation as well, right? So we're seeing, you know, all this crazy stuff from central banks, from the Fed, doing all these just things that would have been unheard of 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even some of them. Um, and so that will, I think, push people into Bitcoin and the use of some of these techniques, right? So, so I agree with you that many people need to feel the pain before they care. So they need to feel the pain of negative interest rates, of bail-ins, capital controls, um, and just general inflation in general um, yeah. to, before they really get more into it. But when once once they do come in, it's like a gradually then suddenly moment. Right? And at that time, only even small changes in the population, even if only 5% of the population started to go hardcore into Bitcoin, we'd see massive, massive changes. Yeah. in our world in terms of what services are available, what products are available, the price of Bitcoin, the development of Bitcoin. I mean, right now we're in such an interesting time for Bitcoin. This is literally why it was invented, right? If if it can stay alive through this period, this is this is the time that Bitcoin reaches its, its inflection point. Uh, banks are doing everything they possibly can to prove out its use case. Yeah, that's right. And so uh, this is a funny thing as well, because you see some of the more anti-Bitcoiner, um, the no-coiner position is, oh, look, I thought you guys were saying Bitcoin is a safe haven. Why is it not? 
you know, why is it not rallying up during this historical financial crisis? You must have been wrong about your Bitcoin thesis all along. How do you respond to that kind of idea? Yeah, I mean, everything uh, was down uh, this past week, right? It's a deleveraging. No, nothing is safe. I don't know. I don't actually know too many Bitcoiners that were saying like, you know, Bitcoin's going to do well in a in a recession. I don't. I don't think that was ever the case. Bitcoin does well in the face of uh, really money printing and uh, monetary and fiscal irresponsibility. And I think that is all. That has kind of always been the case, right? Uh, for most people I talk to, anyway. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I think it also relates to having the ability to spend your money how you wish. When in all likelihood, we're going to see more and more financial controls coming in into the legacy financial system. So I think really the case for it will really get proven out over the next few years. But I can appreciate how from an outsider perspective, obviously, we're in this Bitcoin game, we're, we're bullish on Bitcoin. But an outsider might think, oh, you guys are just shifting the goalposts. You just think it's happening. You're always saying it's around the corner. And maybe you're just like those perma bear gold people who are always doomsaying and whatever. But I mean, for me personally, and I'm curious what you think as well, but personally, the way I would respond on that is more like, look, we really can build a parallel or just an alternative, right? So right now, I, I have a BTC pay server, I can set up and take payment. And anyone doesn't matter what country you're in, if you can do online services, you can do web design or programming or whatever online service, and you can set up and take payment right now. It works right now. You don't need to trust anybody else to be able to do that. And you can't do that with gold, right? I can't send you gold to Zimbabwe or wherever. Only only with Bitcoin is this possible. Yeah, you know, there's there's that there's that aspect. And there's also just the fact that you don't have to watch what the Fed's going to say, you know, <laughs> during a during a crisis like this. You know, you know what the monetary policy is, uh, and I think that's really important. Like the last couple of weeks, if you're a trader, you have to be you have to be watching exactly what what's going on during all these Trump press conferences, uh, because you're waiting for an announcement of fiscal and monetary stimulus, and that's that's pretty ridiculous, I think. So the, it's just the, this idea that you can you don't have to be a trader; uh, you can actually keep most of your wealth in money, right? What it was, what it was, what money's supposed to, um, rather than trying to find all these different places to protect your wealth. And that's, I think, that's one of the biggest uh, worries that I have right now. You know, so many people have or are trying to retire or have retired, and uh, it seems like everybody has to be a macro investor in order to protect their wealth. Uh, when, when really it would be great if if there was an asset, you know, that has a, a predictable monetary policy. And that everybody accepts as uh, a good store of value and a good medium of exchange and a unit of account. And I, I think that uh, that asset could very potentially be, be Bitcoin. Yeah. And we are also seeing uh, alongside this shift towards Bitcoin as the money, we are seeing perhaps more of a shift towards the idea of self-hosting. So instead of trusting Google Cloud, Apple Cloud, whatever, whoever else cloud, potentially setting up your own so I think a good example would be something like Nextcloud, right? You can set up your own document server and it's and have it as like a private Google Docs and so mm -hmm. on. Now, it's not easy to run these things yet. Uh, it's, it still takes some technical competence. But I think, again, aligned with the Bitcoin sovereign individual thesis and inv investment thesis, we are, should see a shift towards that kind of uh, way of operating. 
Uh, do you have any thoughts on how that space evolves? Yeah, the personal server revolution, I think, is going to be massive. And it's still incredibly early days. I think it'll be the biggest, one of the biggest paradigm shifts, right? Like the biggest, uh, most powerful companies right now are powerful because they control your data. Well, what happens to these companies when uh, everybody is operating on personal servers? You know, and th there are a lot of questions there because uh, from an economic standpoint, why do companies want to build apps where they're not going to be able to control your data? How is that monetization going to work? Are users going to have to pay a subscription fee? You know, because right now it's it's really nice to sign up for Facebook. It's free. Sign up for Instagram. It's free. Snapchat. It's free. Obviously, they're harvesting your data on the back end. Um, but this also plays into the idea of are people going to adopt this type of defensive mindset? Or what is going to shift someone from using a, a consumer application that is free um, upfront, but is going to essentially be mining your data on the back end? Uh, and and what yeah, what makes this user switch? Right? Is it a is it a monetary thing? Like maybe and this is something I've thought a, a decent amount about. Maybe uh, one of these applications can help you store all of your user data. You can take that user data and then you can uh, encrypt it and you can sell it on some sort of marketplace. And now uh, the same application that you were using is going to buy that data in order to improve the usability of their uh, application, right? And and so how does that whole data marketplace actually start to play out? I, I'm not really sure, but and it's really early days, but I think that's a really interesting area to, to study. Right. And also with the expansion in home internet connection and having more of an upload, because I think that was one of the limiting factors, at least in the past, most home connections didn't have a good upload. Whereas now we're starting to get to that point where with newer internet technology, you can do it. It's a bit slower, but you can do it. Uh, though there are still vectors or angles of censorship. So for example, if... You know, uh, a government were to try and identify, okay, who's out there using Bitcoin? Who's out there, you know, d doing um, these kind of self-hosted things? Could could that be something where depends on who depends on what kind of actor you're you're talking about or thinking about that might represent a risk? Or another way to think of it as well is not everyone is qualified to run their own server, right? And then you might screw up something about the security of it, and you might accidentally open a port and accidentally open yourself out to all the hackers of the world who start, you know, taking your data. So there are legitimate questions there around defense, security of it, backups, all of those things that you now have to manage for yourself if we are going to go personal server revolution. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it, it's kind of analogous to what we see surfacing in Bitcoin right now. Like some people want to be completely self-sovereign, but you know, my parents aren't going to be uh, on, on that on that kind of line of thinking. And they're probably going to hold a lot of their you know stuff in Coinbase or on Square or, you know, wherever they tend to, wherever the, whatever service they want to use in the future. Uh, but I, I kind of doubt that they're going to ever adopt like a fully self-sovereign model. So like there, there are just tiers of sovereignty that you can kind of opt into. But I think really the, the key is that there's the option, right? It's this optionality that you can actually exit the system. And, I, and really that is, that's kind of what the sovereign individual, the book is largely about, right? Uh, lower exit costs. Yeah. And uh, maybe there's also a role there for culture as well, right? That Bitcoin, we have a culture of self-custody and we always, where possible, teach people, hey, you need to self-custody. You need, you must self-custody. Uh, and what role do you see of having a self-custody culture that pushes people to try and take take command themselves and not trust 
somebody else. Well, I mean, I, I think it. I think it's really important to continuously try to get people to take defense, this protection into their own hands. But there are inevitably going to be people who who want to take different layers, right? You know, I'm, I'm sure the younger generations will be masters of self-sovereignty, right? Like it'll be uh, so easy for someone to actually adopt a self-sovereign model for their Bitcoin wealth, for all their digital wealth. But again, like my parents aren't going to, they're never going to learn how to, how to do all of this stuff, right? It's just, a, it's, it's a big technical lift. Uh, it's also a big risk. Um, so look, uh, did you have any closing thoughts for the listeners on uh, the sovereign individual and, and the investment thesis around it? <laughs> the one other thing that I wanted to mention was uh, sovereign individual talks about Y2K uh, a little bit. And I, I, I meant to mention that as one of the things that obviously didn't play out the way that they that they uh, discussed. Like when I rec- when I recommend the book to to friends, <laughs> I kind of have to say there's a whole chapter on Y2K. You can kind of just skip past that, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> like I. Yeah, obviously, like they go into detail about Y2K and then it's like, well, this is this is the year 2020. We know what happened in, in 2000. But it's, it's still kind of interesting to, to read through some of those chapters. But no, you know, The Sovereign Individual, I think, is such an important book to read. I, not necessarily to, to construct a top down model, but really to understand uh, to, just to understand the possibility of these things to kind of happen and just open your mind up to uh, some of the ways that uh, the world could kind of unfold. And I think there's a decent probability of a lot of these things playing out. Like uh, Sovereign Individual talks about Bitcoin, really, you know, they they talked about they talk about more of a it's a gold backed digital currency that they discuss. But still, you know, the way that they discuss it is is pretty amazing, right? So prescient. So yeah, I I had a fantastic time reading it and a fantastic time uh, writing, writing the Sovereign Individual thesis. And uh, it's been great talking with with you and others on on the thesis. Awesome. So, Phil, where can listeners find you online? Uh, Phil J. Bonello on on Twitter, uh, I, and I think it's probably the same for uh, Substack. That's the easiest easiest way to get in contact with me. Awesome. Well, I'll put those links in the show notes. Thank you for joining me, Phil. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Stephen. So, if you haven't already read the Sovereign Individual, I recommend having a look. It's very much worthwhile for a Bitcoiner. Check out the show notes for this episode, StefanLevera.com/slash. 159. Stay safe out there and I'll see you in the Citadels.